Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great as we approach Hanukkah and Christmas and Kwanzaa and New Year's. So good time to hang out with family, forget about politics and world crises for a moment. And just enjoy yourself. So I hope you have all of that planned. Today's episode, I'm going to talk about something I've been thinking about for quite some time, but wanted to just try to articulate it. And that is, how do we construct a fair and accurate American narrative? That's obviously a big topic. I'm only going to scratch the surface of it in today's discussion. And it's kind of woven its way through this podcast since the very beginning, almost three years ago. And and what's prompted me to think about this is, you know, in this day and age where we have, you know, the real kind of outrageous conduct and incredible corruption and racism from the Trump administration, and that's really infected pretty much the entire Republican Party at this point. We often hear people talking about how certain actions are un-American or against American values. And they're often, again, directed at Republicans who are doing some kind of incredibly racist or, you know, harmful or cruel policy. And, you know, this charge, that's un-American. You know, it's that goes against our values. You hear this very often. And I've always thought that was a pretty weak response. It's It sounds good. It's kind of a moral indignation. But it's it, it, it sounds more informative than it really is. And it actually obscures more than it illuminates. And the reason is, is that America has always been a land of contradictions. We've always, you know, fallen well short of many of our ideals. And if you think about it, right, we were the the world's first modern democracy, but right now we're also one of the weakest. We have some of the lowest voter participation rates. We make it incredibly hard for people to vote. We have incredible voter suppression efforts and purging people from voter rolls. Uh, Obviously, that's not um, this is not nothing new in our history. But again, a really striking contradiction that supposedly, you know, we some of our foreign policy is to help spread democracy. And yet we've done so little to actually strengthen our own democracy, let alone the very um, anti-majoritarian elements that we've let persist for almost 250 years. You know, obviously the Electoral College and the Senate being, you know, the, the most glaring examples. We've also, you know, been very welcoming to immigrants for much of our history. And we are a nation of immigrants and we have some of the highest, you know, percentage of foreign born who are currently, you know, residents in America at any point in our history. But we've also been deeply, deeply racist for most of our history, right? In fact, the times when America has been really open and welcoming 
to immigrants in a really true and universal way has been very, very small compared to our history. Our history is much more full of deep kind of nativism and racism than it is of, of welcoming immigrants. We also are one of the first secular governments. You know, the Constitution is a secular document that despite uh, what the religious right wants us to believe, God is mentioned nowhere in the entire Constitution, nor Jesus, nor anything having to do with religion. In fact, the Establishment Clause makes it very clear that the government is not allowed to, to establish religion or to you know, prefer any religion over another. So we have this incredible kind of secular document that has gotten us dedicated to really freedom of religion, which is an incredible kind of liberating uh, part of our institutions. But we also have many theocratic elements, you know, whether it's the religious right that really wants to make America a Christian nation. And if you think I'm exaggerating on that, you know, look at the statements of Attorney General uh, Bill Barr that he's made recently about his view of secular society. If you're, if you're at any doubt that there's theocratic elements still at the highest forms of, of government in the United States, look no further than Bill Barr. We also, you know, I think have done a lot to celebrate liberty in our country. You know, we really do cherish kind of personal liberty and freedom. Yet at the same time, we have some of the most draconian and punitive legal structures in the world and literally one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. I mean, our incarceration rates are on par with many autocratic police states, and they're just tremendously, tremendously much higher than any other you know, Western democracy. So again, this kind of glaring contradictions. And so, you know, I ask myself, with all these contradictions, you know, oftentimes people go into do different camps, right? It's just, you know, love it or leave it, you know, the flag waving, kind of real jingoistic American, you know, Americanism, which is you see mostly on the right. It's it's not exclusive on the right, but mostly on the right. And that's incredibly empty and vacuous and, you know, laced with kind of racism and just a denial of history, a denial of facts, denial of truth. And so we definitely don't want to go there. But then oftentimes we have the other side, which is kind of a real kind of animosity to and kind of almost a distaste and, you know, a shame of, of American policy and Americanism and American culture. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's concentrated on the left. I would say that that's accurate. And, and that seems to be a bridge too far, too, because despite all of our you know, weaknesses and, 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 you know, not living up to our ideals, we certainly, I don't think, should be characterized quite that darkly and that ba badly, especially relative to other societies. And so that's a little too far. And so the question still remains, what's the fair and accurate narrative? How should we describe ourselves in ways that aren't overly simplistic but they're true, you know, that really ring true and sincere. And this is tough because I really think part of the reason America has not progressed as as rapidly as it should have and, and as we hope it will is because we just don't have an accurate, accurate way of viewing ourselves. And it's very hard for us to move forward when we don't even, you know, can't even reconcile all of these contradictions. So after the break, I'm going to try to, try to you know, throw out some thoughts here of how we do this. 
And then in the anecdotes, I'm going to talk about in this time of giving some organizations that I highly recommend that are going to help get America back on track. Okay, so how does a true American narrative begin? This is a tough question and, you know, might as well begin at the beginning and to think about our origin story when we were fighting independence from the British. And if you think about this, we were fighting one form of oppression, one we can, you know, talk about and discuss probably ad nauseum you know how oppressive was the british monarchy and was it a real legitimate kind of revolution but i think i think the the weight of the evidence says that at that moment in time the you know the monarchy was pretty corrupt and oppressive and there was a good case for breaking away from britain and and forging you know on our own and so that is really the story, right? The Revolutionary War, the kind of freedom fighter, the, you know, the, the fighting for independence. And so I think that is a true narrative. You know, America was, you know, steeped in this and was forged in a, in a fight for independence. But at the same time, as we were fighting for independence from one, uh, you know, monarchy, we were oppressing and destroying other cultures at the same time. We were obviously, you know, well on our way of oppressing and killing Native American tribes. And slavery was, you know, well on its way to accelerating and then peaking, you know, in the 1800s. So from the very, very first moment when we were fighting a fierce war of independence, we were at the same time oppressing others. And so this contradiction is really baked into the cake in the American psyche. And of course, this is uh, in our Constitution, where we literally include Africans as two-thirds of human beings. We literally put a kind of hierarchy of humanity into our founding document. And then nothing more, you know, you could, you could have no stronger case to say that we were really forging a kind of a humanitarian contradiction at the very moment that our nation was being born. And this continued as we began our democratic experiment. We enslaved a huge portion of our population that grew for many decades. And at the same time, we also denied the franchise to women. Now, there were you know, very few parts of the world where women had an equal say in, in governance and leadership. But to really make it that direct that women had no share of our you know democratic system in terms of voting until the 20th century I mean think of that it was more than you know half of our history 
women were not allowed to vote. And so again, this kind of deep contradiction that we were for democracy and yet really um, excluding a huge portion of our population from it. Now, the men who developed our governing institutions were radical in many ways. Uh, they were, you know, pretty, they were revolutionary. And the Constitution was the first in you know, the modern world. And it, you know, was, came from incredibly deep thought, the balance of powers, the kind of different ways the institutions could, um, you know, could be more structured so that none would have more power than the others and could really forge a kind of a, a governing coalition that would be workable and has withstood the test of time for, for good or for ill and for both. Um, these last couple centuries is, is quite impressive. But in many ways, they were also very conservative and timid. You know, there were many people arguing against slavery at the time the Constitution was written. It is not like, you know, it had to be another hundred years before there was a large scale movement against slavery. The founding fathers, many of them were conflicted and they knew it was wrong. And in fact, they knew that there was going to be trouble ahead because of the contradictions built into, you know, a nation that strived for freedom and yet enslaved a huge portion of its populace. So, you know, I think we should give credit to the founding fathers for, for the really deep intellectual work they did. But I don't think we should revere them, you know, as as heroes or saints or anything of that nature, but just as, you know, deeply committed individuals to to a you know an intellectual project a governing project that had a lot of promise they certainly left a mark of aspiration and freedom especially in the declaration of independence you know with its all men are created equal and uh, and you know the cause of liberty and the pursuit of happiness this has been a, a tremendous guiding light to americans and in fact to many americans who these ideals have not been you know truly lived up to so the Declaration of Independence has inspired many marginalized groups in America to actually strive for justice and, and true equality because they see that those sentiments are baked into the fabric, right? So that's the, that's the kind of somewhat unique and perhaps genius of the American system that there was enough in, aspirational, inspirational language and intent in our documents that it kind of paved the way and provided the seeds for people to, to pick up that torch and try to really expand it into a true, equal, and just society. Now, it's also important to remember that America has not always progressed. It has not been a linear uphill climb to you know a greater sphere of justice and morality. The Civil War is, is obviously the most glaring example where we regressed and you know killed hundreds of thousands of our own citizens you know often family against family but we've also experienced many periods where progress has retreated and these often come after we have periods of progress so there's very often a backlash against progress in America and we get into dark times and I don't think this age is any different in the sense that you know we can we can argue about how much Obama achieved but certainly, you know, the first black president and, you know, a proud black man serving eight years of a very dignified administration really got the white supremacist and racist elements of this society really charged up to, 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 to push us backwards. 
I think probably the most disheartening period is in the Reconstruction after the Civil War, when you see all the progress that was being made. I mean, the tales of you know Southern legislatures where they had you know even majorities of Africans in the legislature, and then all of that just violently repressed till we got you know really another century of Jim Crow and domestic terrorism, which really hasn't been completely unwound even to this day, and so. I think it's very important to realize that we don't often uh, move forward, that we do go through dark periods, and certainly, obviously, we want to minimize those as a, to whatever extent possible. Kind of taking a step back here, I think it's important also to realize we're a relatively young nation in the kind of on the historical scale, right? If you look at, you know, many European nations that have been in some form or another for you know many many more centuries than us and of course if you go to China and you talk about you know civilization that in some sense has been around for thousands of years we're really in our infancy ideologically and in some ways you know it's it's not surprising that we have yet to live up to our promises because of how young we are now we might never we you know America could dissolve or you know, enough conflict and chaos could happen in the world that we never get to live up to those promises. But, you know, we, we will see. There's many chapters uh, to, be, to be written. I think it's also fair to say that we've had many great moments and achievements in our history. But I don't think it's fair to say that we've ever been a truly great society. I think the amount of oppression and injustice that we perpetrated against large segments of our population pretty much continually, I don't think you can be a great society when you do that. I think you can have great leaders, great moments, great you know, eras, achieve certain great things, whether it's you know defeating um, the Axis powers in World War II or sending you know a man to the moon. You know, there are awesome, great things in America, but I don't think we can ever claim to be a truly great nation until many metrics of kind of equality and justice are, are much improved. And so the last couple points I just want to make that I think, uh, you know, speak a lot to the current moment are, you know, there's always been a streak, if you read American literature and American history, a pretty influential streak of kind of the get-rich-quick, the con man, the snake oil salesman that has always kind of been prevalent in the American psyche, right? Maybe it comes from the frontier mentality and the the gold rush and the you know the get rich you know get rich quick and go you know stake your claim. We often seek the flash and the quickness over kind of the longer term and the substance, and we don't do nuance very well. And, you know, the, the Trump era is obviously a, a clear indication that that strain of Americanism is still very strong in our culture. We are also, whether we like to admit it or not, we are a very militaristic society and, and, and pretty violent. In if you look at kind of rates of domestic violence, gun violence, and then, of course, war. And I would argue that our militarism is more out of insecurity than true strength. If you look at many of the wars we fought, particularly in the modern era, they were really done out of insecurity, right? We didn't think that, you know, Vietnam could become its own nation state, that it would succumb to communism and threaten the rest of Asia. 
I think that was a horrible misreading of history, and we just couldn't grapple with that. We had the, you know, we wanted to just go crush it and fight it militarily. You know, if you look, obviously, at the Afghan, Afghanistan and Iraq wars, you know, coming out of this sense of, you know, sh- you know, kind of humiliation of being attacked in our homeland and just lashing out and just doing incredible damage to the world and ourselves because we we just couldn't think rationally. It was this insecurity that drove us to these wars. And oftentimes, we, we, it seems like we're much more apt to expend blood and treasure, you know, and send more blood and treasure after, you know, increasingly after bad, just to do that rather than to admit defeat, you know, that we'll just prolong wars and wars. I mean, think about we've been in Afghanistan now for, you know, almost two decades and we just we rather just keep pouring the blood and treasure in than just admit defeat. And again, I think that's an insecurity. I don't think that's a maturity. Maybe it's because of, you know, again, our relative infancy as a kind of culture and a society. Clearly, the military industrial complex plays on these weaknesses. And they have, you know, are extracting an ever greater share of our national treasure because of this militarism streak which I think we really must confront if we're ever going to become a great society. Because societies that spend this much on military when there's so many domestic needs, just I don't think can ever claim to greatness. And right now, I mean, it's just grotesque. The military budget right now is at the peak of the Iraq war. If you add up all of it, it's over a trillion dollars. And it just, you know, when we have nobody threatening us, really. I mean, again, most of this is police intelligence actions. There are no states threatening us. We have peaceful neighbors. So this money is just really down a rat hole. You know, we also profess to hate socialism. A lot of our psyche is based on this war, this ideological war against communism. But ironically, our most popular social programs, Social Security and Medicare, are socialist in nature. So... You know, to kind of wrap up this narrative of contradiction, overall, I think it's fair to say that we are a work in progress. We are a fluid and very dynamic society, so nothing is fixed. We can overcome our worst instincts, but only if we acknowledge our faults and acknowledge who we truly are. I think that's really one of the big stumbling blocks is just not acknowledging who we really are and going for kind of simplistic bumper sticker you know, and instead of really examining our contradictions and trying to move forward and, and obviously minimize the negative and really emphasize the positive, because I do think there's incredible positivity in America. And if we can only strengthen that, I think one day we can truly be a great nation. So after the break, I'll come back with some anecdotes and, uh, and then uh, we'll call it a day.
Okay, so for the antidotes for today, I want to talk about four organizations that I think are really worth uh, a donation in this time of giving as we're ending the year. Hopefully some of you will have some money to give to charity, and I really want to recommend these four organizations that are really focused on building democracy because, you know, the democratic institutions in America are frail. And there's been a, you know, a continual onslaught by the Republicans to, again, suppress voting and gerrymander. And so the organizations are going to fight back against this and build true democracy. I think for the long term, this is what we really need. And so the first one is Mi Familia Vota. That is an organization that is focused on voter registration for um, Latino and Hispanic uh, members of society, and they target the you know the, the the states with the fastest growing populations of Hispanic voters. And so, for example, Florida and Texas. So Florida, which you know we'd love to get back in the Democratic camp in 2020, and then Texas, which is trending um, bluer every year, and with you know increased Hispanic voter registration, uh, you know we can make you know Texas blue one day, and then the Republican Party can really. Uh, run for the hills. The next organization is Vote Forward. They're a great organization that um, is also doing voter registration. And what they do is they they sponsor campaigns. You can actually also just volunteer for them, where you write letters to people uh, to get them to register to vote, and you include the forms so they get everything ready. So all they have to do is sign their name, and then they're registered to vote. So a really effective way to get people on the voter rolls. The third organization is the Environmental Voter Project. And this is a really interesting organization. They have found out that a lot of people who care about the environment as their number one issue, and climate change in particular, don't vote, which again is kind of shocking given the stakes. But what they do is they try to speak to environmental messages to get people to vote in you know the upcoming elections and they've been incredibly successful they use very sophisticated kind of behavior design techniques to to really nudge people to vote and given how important climate change is you know to get even a couple million more people around the country who typically don't vote but to vote for the environment is a huge huge deal and then the final organization is swing left it's again another progressive democratic organization that is trying to promote you know sw uh, flipping these swing districts from republican to democrat and just doing great work around the country so all four of those organizations are great i give to all four of these organizations myself so i am practicing what i preach here i also want to just give a shout that if you're in a state that has horrible gerrymandering and voter suppression most likely you're in a state that's a you know Republican-controlled state because most Democratic-controlled states do not have these type of policies. But if you are in a you know a Texas, if you're in a Wisconsin, if you're in a North Carolina, you know call your state representatives and find out how you can get involved, whether it's through ballot initiatives or state legislation to you know have fair redistricting and get rid of gerrymandering to increase voter participation and either same day registration or vote by mail or increase the number of polling places or early voting there's all kinds of initiatives at the state level that you can get involved with you know I live in California where we have really good voting laws so 
locally I can't do that much in my state because we're already pretty pretty good on that score. And and, and finally, as you know, we're kind of wrapping up the dispatch here for the holiday season. You know, America definitely needs some more gratitude. We are our own worst enemy, right? It's our own internal fights. There is no external enemy that is going to defeat America. We are always our own worst enemy through our internal, you know, politics and our division. And I'm really hoping we can unite and come together and really build a truly great America. I, I hope to live to see that. And so with that, everybody, let's make America grateful again. Have a happy, you know, holiday season. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. And uh, I'll be back on December 31st to talk about a little preview for what I think is in store for 2020. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Stitcher. Uh, Rate it. Share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. And with that, everybody, be well. Take care. (laughs) 